All right. Uh, thank you, guys. Praise band. They came up early. They set up. That's uh, magnificent. So let's give them a hand. Guys, thanks for praise band. Um, good uh, morning. So that's to wake everybody up, right? Good morning and no sleeping. Uh, glad to see everybody here. Uh, my prayer for you guys and uh, for uh, us as we uh, go to this uh, theme here for Awaken. But my prayer for you has been really that, that we could uh, just love God a little bit better and love each other. That's the whole purpose of our church anyway. And so as we come up here and spend the weekend together, I, I pray that you'd be able to find a moment, just be, a, a moment or two just between you and God where you could just love him a little bit, where he could love you, that you'd be open to just sitting and listening, maybe not even talking to God, just, just go out and just be with him for a minute where you can love God and let him love you, and that also we can have a time to love each other. It is my a great privilege tonight to introduce uh, to you, uh, in a moment he'll be coming up. Some of you guys saw him already. His name is Pastor Steve Kim. Clap, clap, clap. That's a good clap. Not yet. So, uh, yeah, good clap now. Um, but I just want to tell you a little bit about him, uh, how much I love him. I met him when he was like 17 years old, and I was maybe 19 years old or something. And, um, and, and it was such a joy to even meet him then. And I, I've got to start a church with him, probably three or four different churches we've planted uh, over the years. And I've got to see him grow. Um, I, I had the privilege of uh, marrying him to one of the most wonderful women that I've ever met. Uh, one of the strongest people that I know. Uh, if you get a chance to just uh, spend any time with Priscilla, his wife, then uh, you will be better off for it. She is fantastic. Um, she is just amazing testimony to God's goodness. And so we're so glad you could make it here. And uh, between, but behind every good man, there's a great woman, right? And so that is the case here for sure. Uh, I think that Pastor Steve is a good man, and I love him deeply. But uh, we know where the power is coming from, right? It's from his beautiful wife. They have two great kids, uh, Hope and Noah. And so if you get a chance to see them, uh, just say hey to him. They're a little bit shy, maybe. So it's always overwhelming when everyone knows your name, but you don't know their name. So, but uh, it is a privilege to to be here with uh, Kim family. Um, Pastor Steve, uh, he's pastored. He's uh, he's been uh, at low points in his life. He's been at high points in his life. He has a, a master's of social work. He's been a social worker. He's been an advocate for people on death row to try to prevent death row, uh, rather life in prison, that sort of stuff. He's worked with uh, lawyers and politicians, and he's worked with uh, poor people and prisoners. And so he's been, uh, his scope of experience is from the lowest of low to people who are in high, powerful positions. And so he's got this wealth of knowledge. He's an incredible counselor. If you're having marriage problems, you know, after that's the time to talk to him right then. He only charges $200 an hour, so uh, do keep that in mind. As you, If you take a whole hour, he charges every 15 minutes for the full hour, so just so you know that. So cut off your conversation at about 14 minutes. Um, he has multiple jobs. He, he works super hard. Uh, he is a great friend of mine, and I'm so privileged to be able to introduce him. Pastor Steve, can you come up here? I guess three strikes and you're out because you didn't bring me to Jericho Road Church for uh, church planting. <laughs> so, praise God. Hey, it's an honor to be here with you guys today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really um, uh, feel privileged and honored, you know? And so, uh, uh, you know, I always do this, and Priscilla told me not to do it, but I'm going to take a little stab at it. And, um, you know, working at a nonprofit, a place called Project Kinship. Have you guys heard of a place called Homeboy Industries in L.A.? Anybody heard of Father Greg Boyle? Good, good, good. Yeah, so Father Greg's a good friend, and um, long story short, I'll get into it a little bit later. He blessed us. He was like, go with my children, and we started a, a homeboy industries called Project Kinship in Orange County. And what I realized over the years is that we don't talk about how we're feeling often. It's not a cheesy, how you feeling? 
it's just checking in on where you're at. So in everything we do with the kids, with the adults, even politicians, we're in meetings, I go, we got to do this. And they look at me like I'm crazy, but just trust the process. If not, just bear with it, you know? So uh, just to see where you're at, just give me your first name and uh, literally a word of how you're feeling. Could be, but not good, all right, because it's too easy. Because I don't want to be like the kids in juvenile hall where it's like good, 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 good. So just think of a word just so we can uh, see where you're at. So we'll start here. Just say your name and a word of how you're feeling. Just. Uh, Mark and renewed. Oh, renewed. Oh, renewed. Okay. Right. You could use the same word too. You don't have to, you know, feel pressure that they took your word, you know? Yeah. Uh, Jerry, excited. Okay. okay. Uh, yes, Rina, I'm not sure yet. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, Peter, two words. In anticipation. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah, excited. Okay. Oh, good. Charles, Wes. Nice. Oh, nice. Nice. Sam, anticipation. Oh, yeah. First off. Nice. Urgent, excited. Okay. Oh, yeah, man. Okay, okay. Al, happy? Okay, awesome. White, I'm ready. Ready. Awesome. Joy, Liz, open. Open. Encouraged. Oh, nice. Oh, four. Peter, full. Four. Oh, <laughs> nice. Nice. Very nice. We'll go. Newly grateful. Grateful. Ryan, tired. Tired, yeah. Awesome. You know, uh, a couple of reasons I do that is one, I know where you're at. So if you fall asleep, I'm not going to be uh, taking it to heart because she's tired. So I'm checking in. No problem. Somebody's full, falls asleep. No problem. Sleep, you know. We do it with the kids because we don't know where we're at. What I realized is that over the years, a lot of us forgot how to feel. A guy named Reggie uh, was an African-American guy in San Diego. He's doing life, life in prison. Since he was sitting in prison, he realized that... Um, well, he was figuring out, well, how did I end up in prison doing a life sentence? And as he's reflecting on his life, he realized that every time he got angry, he got violent. He wasn't able to articulate how he felt. And for him, it ended up in a life sentence, which he eventually uh, was able to get released. Then I thought, well, maybe it's not just for him. Maybe it's for little kids. Maybe it's for teenagers. Maybe it's for big, bad politicians who um, have egos this big and have had not had a space for people to check in. And so... Uh, it's been tried and tested. I think it works all the way across the board. It's okay to check in on how people are doing, you know? I don't think we do that enough. And so I think in community, it's important that we do that, you know? Another thing in community is just to talk to each other. Um, and so what I want to do, just for a couple seconds, uh, I, I did, so two things. Um, I, I planned sermons, so I got four done, check. 
But as I was looking through your registration site, I, I understand you have a theme called Awaken. So as I read that, I was awakened. <laughs> because uh, the theme that I was talking about was not on being awakened, but I'm sure will intersect somehow. But um, why don't you just turn to somebody and just in a meaningful way, just talk about what you want to get out of this next four days. You should, have, you should have some type of outcome or some type of thought. If it's fun, but you should have something in mind. Right? You spend four days, you pay good money to come up here, taking time away. Just think about it. Give us some thought, and maybe at the end of this, what's something you would like to get out of it? You know? So just pick, turn somebody and say, hey, you know, uh, what do you want to get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. This will help build community. <laughs> Like thirty more seconds. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyone want to share? I didn't, I didn't think so. So. <laughs> Uh, anyone want to share what somebody wants to get out of this retreat? All right. So um, I've been married for 15 years. Sam, thank you for the great introduction. That was uh, quite quite the introduction. Um, yeah, it's been crazy. Tomorrow I'm going to share my testimony. I haven't done it in a long time. And just to plant the seed, you guys are going to share your testimony with each other too for a brief moment. So think about it overnight. Because uh, i got to share mine. You guys should share with each other. Right? And it helps build community. So just to plant the seed a little bit. The ministry for a few years, many of them with Sam for three. I, I found out tonight, three strikes you out. <laughs> um, worked at USC teaching a little bit. Been, uh, been addicted to drugs, been to jail. Had some kids. And um, uh, get to lead this place called Project Kinship now, which has been a dream of mine since about 15 years. And God's opened the door as he closed one door for church. And it's been quite the journey. And at Project Kinship, we do um, a lot of things like counseling, support groups, uh, policy work, or we go to uh, Sacramento, we go to uh, city council meetings, we fight for policies, um, we get to do a lot of cool stuff, work in the schools in Santa Ana, just a lot, a lot of different programming. But what we really do is we mirror back to people the preciousness that God sees in them that they can't see in themselves. Everything else is programming, but our true work and the core of our program is spending day after day mirroring back to people this preciousness that they forget because of all the wear and tear in their life. And the second thing we do is that we always remind people that they're more than the worst mistake of their past. What I realized when I was going through the next 16 years, going from a drug addict to you know, teaching at USC and all that stuff, I always thought that there was some other answer, that if I got here, then I'll be good. And if I got here, I'll be good. And if I got in this circle, but what I realized is people are people whether you're living in the high areas of Cota de Casa or whether you're living at homeless in the streets of Anaheim, that there's this core need of being accepted. Right? And that's what happened to the Pharisees. I think they made this distinction of us and them, and they forgot that they fell into the same pocket of needing God desperately. So that's what we do at Project Kinship. 
We mirror people their God goodness that they can't see in themselves, and we help people realize they're more than the worst mistake of their past. And maybe if you're like me, I'm thinking we do that to them, but in reality in the work, they do that to me. And as I work with them, I'm reminded that I can't see God's goodness in my life even after all these years. You know, uh, there's a misconception that kids join gangs because of certain things. Why do you guys think kids join gangs? Just a question. What do you guys think? No right, no wrong answer. What do you guys think? Family. Oh, family. Damn, you guys good. Social workers? <laughs> Sense of belonging. What else? Anything else? Acceptance. Acceptance? Nice. What else? Source of income? Mm-hmm. You know, in the 80s, Nancy Reagan used to think there was this pull factor that kids are joining a gang because of these things. And you guys are right, actually. A sense of belonging, um, all these things, a, a financial um, opportunity sometimes. What Father Greg talks about, it's never a pull factor. No kid joins a gang because of all these things that they offer, that it's always a push factor, that the push is always trauma, abuse, neglect, abandonment, all these things are always the push factor and gangs become the viable choice for them. So the outsider view is they don't understand that. Just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you can do it. But when I think about gang members, it's kind of like how God sees us, that we get pushed to these things of this world and we latch on so tightly that we, it's hard for us to latch on to God. See, with gangs, there's always these root causes. It's always, always a push factor. No hopeful kid ever joins a gang and he calls it having this lethal absence of hope. The truth is, all of us here, even in this room, have to deal with this lethal absence of hope. And even as a Christian, it will creep up in times of your life. Tomorrow, I'll share with you, at the highest point of my life, I felt the lowest. And all these things that I wanted, and two years ago, my marriage was crumbling. And my life was falling apart, even after all these years of being a Christian. And I think it's just this game that we play. Now, I ain't no spring chicken. I know that, actually, I'm, uh, no disrespect, I'm not one, the oldest one in the room. It feels kind of good. <laughs> Usually I'm the oldest, but um, the elders here, <laughs> we're pretty close. But we're on the second half of our game. The first 40 years is competing. Who can go to the better college? Who can take the better test score? Who can get the better job? But the other rest of your half, it's not going to matter because you've already competed. And once you get there, it doesn't really matter what this person's got anymore. It shouldn't. If you are, you're still in denial. But the first half is about competing. It's about performance. But the second half of our life, it's about relationship. It's about getting ready to build this community of hope. And that's why I was really happy to be here. I'm not talking to youth. I'm not talking to kids. I'm not talking to, you know, I'm talking to folks who are in their second half. Right? And you guys are the community that's going to build Jericho Road Church. I'm really excited. So, um, you know, whether you're living in the barrios of Santa Ana or the ghettos of Irvine, all of us struggle with embracing God's love. It's just too overwhelming to embrace God's love. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And the big part of our faith, I think, journey is being able to embrace this truth that God loves us tremendously. It's really hard. It's really hard to be able to palms open, heart open to say, God, I receive your love completely because I think if you did and if I did, your life would radically transform. And it's a hard thing to do because I think it's hard for us to see our preciousness in the way God sees us. It's very difficult. So then the question is, why is it so hard for us to see what God sees in us? 
And I think it's because of this S word. Anyone know what it is? Okay. Shame. If you're Asian, we know a little something about shame. <laughs> we live in a shame culture. <laughs> Believe me, I had to experience it growing up, you know. Look, shame expert. Did you know there's a shame expert? Brene Brown, the shame expert, makes a distinction between guilt and shame. She says there's a profound difference between shame and guilt. It might be on the PowerPoint. It's not okay. She says, I believe guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. But shame is, the defi- I define shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. James Gilligan is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist who went to um, this medical place, and he started studying people who were doing these heinous crimes of plucking people's eyes out, cutting their tongues off, and he was like, what's wrong with these people? And he wrote a book called Violence. He says, children who fail to receive sufficient love from others fail to build those reserves of self-love and the capacity for self-love which enable them to survive the inevitable rejections and humiliations which even the most fortunate of people cannot avoid. Without feelings of love, the self feels numb, empty, and dead, and the absence of self-love is shame. Author John Bradshaw says, shame is at the root of all addictions. This would be certainly true with gang addiction. In the face of all this, the call is to allow the painful shame of others to have purchase on our lives. Not to fix the pain, but to feel it. And Belden Lane, the theologian, writes, Divine love is incessantly restless until it turns all woundedness into health, all deformity into beauty, and all embarrassment, embarrassment into anger. It's really difficult for us to overcome a lot of traumas and pains in our life. It just is. I think some of us have mastered masking the pains, but if you're a human being, I certainly believe that the pains and traumas that we carry is very difficult to overcome. Many of us carry these deep childhood wounds way into our adult life. I mean, if you just take a brief moment to think about your life, there's parts of my childhood I can't even recall. Maybe the drugs, okay, I could, okay, maybe, right? Maybe some brain damage. But I just can't recall it. There's actually gaps in my life where I can't recall my childhood. And I think those memories get stored in your body. It doesn't have to be extreme, but there are certain points in your life where disappointment and these things have probably impacted you. And so for many of us, this is the challenge. Instead of overcoming the wound, we become the wound. There's a big difference. Instead of being able to overcome these challenges, we become the wound. The definition of becoming the wound is the process of losing sight of our preciousness as children of God. It's rooted in sin that creates an identity of shame. At the end of the day, it's saying, I'm unworthy of any type of God's love. It's not this like I'm unworthy graciousness. It's God, I'm so unworthy I can't even accept your love. So because of that, I'm going to go the other way. What did Adam and Eve do after they had sinned? They ran. That's what shame and sin does. And it's a game that we play on life no matter where. All the way till the end of your life, some people master it a little better. But I think my understanding is till the day you die, you'll wrestle with it. And as you're dying, I think you'll try to catch up to a place of being able to grasp this type of love. There's a kid in Jesse Morrison. Uh, he spent about 15 years at San Quentin uh, uh, Death Row. 
And I went up there for the first time. Has anyone ever been to San Quentin? What, what did you think? It's no bueno, right? It's not good. You know, that place uh, is scary. <laughs> so I went there, and it's on a beautiful piece of property. You go, and it's like old school cells, chilling open. There's a guy with rolled up, looked like he was on it's an episode of Chips, Ponch or whatever, right? Ponch, what's his name? Is it Ponch? Okay. Don't act like you don't know. <laughs> Uh, he goes, you know, had a little aviator glasses on. He goes, welcome to San Quentin. <laughs> Jesus. He goes, follow that yellow line. And you follow it. It's like this big castle. You hear like clanking, you know. And then I swear, I, I heard a, oh, my God, behind the wall. And I go, oh, just keep walking, just keep walking, you know. <laughs> so then I go, it's visiting time. And it's a, a cell, a plastic cell about this wide. It's covered in plexiglass with two tables and a chair. And I'm claustrophobic. And when you walk in, uh, they lock it. And then you sit in there. <laughs> Dear God, like, I'm so scared in there. And my goal was to figure out what happened to Jesse's life. And I asked Jesse, hey, what's going on? You know, tell me about your life. We're here to figure out your case. And, um, oh, sorry, guys. Oh, so I said, tell me about your case. Tell me about your life. I'm here to figure out a difficult moment in your life. So Jesse goes, I'm going to tell you. And I thought he was going to tell me some, like, hardcore gang, like, killer thing. But he tells me this story. He goes, you know, at school, when I was at school, I used to always be sat in this desk all the way from the other kids. And the teacher would give me a paper and a box of crayons. Nice to draw, man. And I'm like, cool. I'm like, okay, what's his story going? And then he says that when he got, um, oh, one day he goes, so I, when I was sitting there, I decided to make um, a picture for my mama. And I spent all day writing this picture for my mama. And then he said, I remember being a little kid when I got home. When my mama got home, I waited all day for her to get home, and I could still remember the car driving on the, uh, the, the rocks when she was coming home. And when she came home, I ran up to her with this picture, and I showed it to her, and I said, Mama, look what I drew for you. And he goes, you know what my mom did? I said, what? She took this picture, she crumbled it up, she threw it at my chest. She said, you ain't never going to be the S-word, and this picture ain't the S-word. And he said, man, that's the story I got for you. And what I took away from that, at that moment for him, Jesse became the wound, and he was never really able to bounce back. You know, for me too, um, I became the wound very early in my childhood. I have actually a picture of this beautiful kid. Let's check him out. Is there a, is there a kid of a beautiful... Oh, hmm. I think we'll keep going. I think there's a picture. So here's the quotes. Yeah. Oh, let's just take a look at this beautiful kid right there. Oh, no, let's go back, yeah. Yeah, there's a boy in the back, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> That's when they used to rock the bull haircuts. Anyone ever have those? Okay, well, I got beat up all the time because of this haircut. <laughs> I lived in an all-Latino neighborhood in Garden Grove at that time, and racism was high. And I used to hear this song, Chino, Chino, Japones. <laughs> they used to come and do all of this, you know. It was like, what the? My mom was working all the time, latchkey kid, you know, Back in the day, you could just leave your kid at home and <laughs> fend for yourself, you know? you know. I'd pop out when the ice cream man came, go come home. You know, I just wanted to, like, be accepted, you know? And I remember riding my bike from here to about that wall. And once I hit that wall, a kid would come up to me and say, let me see your bike. I thought, okay. What do you guys think happened? He stole it. And it was so bad, the next day, I was, like, watching him ride my bike. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess you could borrow it, <laughs> And it was really hard because I just wanted to be accepted. 
And I remember one day the kids said, hey, after school, we'll let you hang out with us. And I used to watch the kids play outside. Oh, yeah. After school, I got my little bright orange shorts on. I had a favorite Maui and Sun shirt. We got the shark that holds a surfboard. I used to wear that every day. So I go, I go across the street, and uh, the door is open, but the screen is closed. Oh, that's strange. I see kids playing here every day. And I was maybe in third grade. And I open the gate, uh, open the screen door, and no one's in there. And all of a sudden, a kid pops up, and then he throws a mud ball. Another one hits me, like 30 mud ball. It's like, like you know, a, 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 a kid with a bull haircut, little kid getting hit up by all these mud balls, right? And what did I do? I cried. And what did they do? They laughed. And I went back home, and was my mom home? She was working. So I had to wait all day, had to figure it out. And by the time she came home, I was like a dried up piece of clay. <laughs> You know, and I told the story, believe it or not, in my 30s. I had forgotten about it. I was in this thing called these like, like healing circles. They say it's not like over spiritual. It's just people get together and talk about questions, right? You know, what's a difficult time in your life? Now, I'm trying to think of something cool. And in my 30s, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, this memory comes from somewhere. As I'm sharing the story, I'm holding my, it's so embarrassing. And all these tattoos, you know, and they're like, yeah, Steve's tough. And I'm like, <laughs> crying, you know, and I was going like this, and I became that kid in my 30s, and what it brought to me was I never really quite healed from that wound, and the game I played was to be a funny guy or to do whatever I can to be accepted because I always wanted to be a part of the group, and that's the mask I wore, and we'll talk about that on Sunday. This is about the mask you wear, too. I never at that young age was able to get over that. It's this idea of you're worthless so you can't be a part of this group. Your eyes are different, so you must not fit into who we are. And even worse, who do you think that you are that you would even come somewhere like this, right? So that's the game I learned how to play. So there's two things that happen when we become the wound. I don't know, 30 minutes. i gotta, I got to go faster. So we can't see our preciousness that God sees in us. Do you think that God would send Jesus to die for us if we weren't worth it? And I think the consensus here would be, well, of course he loves us, but the game is, do you actually believe it? It's one thing to know it, but do we actually believe it? It's different. There's a big distinction there. And the second thing is, when we become the wound, it impacts our ability to be vulnerable. And we know this is true for you, you have too many layers to allow yourself to be vulnerable with anybody else. Because if I'm vulnerable with you, then you might hurt me. You may see me for who I am. The question as Christians is, if we can't show people who we are, how can the life-transforming testimony of what God's done for us impact somebody else? Because you're too perfect. And why would an imperfect come to somebody who's perfect? You've got to be able to come to a place of being vulnerable and not worried about saving face with wisdom. I have a video I want to show real quick about uh, Father Greg. It's about overcoming the wound requires a few things. And then we'll go through some passages and then I'll try to wrap it up. So uh, I have a video here. Uh, it's really cool. I like it. I always show it and hopefully we can show it. It's like three minutes. Oh, sweet.
first step is to overcome the wound is to welcome our own wounds you know life is hard I don't care how well put a person looks you're gonna have great times but there's gonna be difficult times and life is just hard it is what it is some of us have more resource so our physical life is easier but at the end of the day all of us experience difficult moments in life but see, it's about coming to terms in our brokenness and the frailty of life. It's about embracing the truth that it's okay not to be perfect. The second half of our life, how hard was it for you to spend 40, 50 years trying to be perfect and never achieving it because there's always something else next? Aren't you tired? Second step is to allow ourselves to be vulnerable with God. And that happens when we believe the truth that even in all of our sins and failures and mistakes, God will not reject us. Brene Brown, I've got a quote from her. She says, Courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. 
Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. In our passage today, which I'm going to push through, is in Luke 7, 36 through 50, and I'm sure you've read this already. It's one of my favorite passages. The Pharisee, one of the Pharisees was impressed by Jesus, so they invited him to a party. There's a celebration where a promiscuous woman crashes his party, and this ain't no backyard boogie or no like club or you know, it's a it's a very like eloquent party. My understanding it was outside, probably some wine and cheese, you know, some that caviar, you know, and all, whatever it was, some good stuff. There was no taco man there, you know. It was a nice place. And it was known that people would watch this party from the outside and just watch these eloquent, righteous people have parties. Kind of like watching a basketball game, like these high elevated people on the outside would just watch, just to get a glimpse of these amazing people. And the Pharisees invited Jesus into this party. So when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, which he thought he was coming to the party, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So picture the scene. Jesus is chilling out at this big party. Outdoors, everyone's hanging out, the holy people. Then all of a sudden, this woman who is known to be very promiscuous, some say she's a hooker, walks into this party, right? It's like having a big party and a homeless person comes in. Like, just it's just absurd. Who does this person think that she is to even have the nerve to even come into this party? And what makes it even worse, she walks all the way up to Jesus. She falls at his feet and begins to weep as she's washing his feet with her tears in this jar of perfume, which took a long time to earn. I think it was a year. I don't know how many denarii it was. It was a lot of money. And she broke that began to wash. I bet you her plan was to just wash her feet with the perfume and try to be cool. But she was so overwhelmed with pain that she made herself vulnerable and she could not do anything else but fall and weep in the sight of Jesus. So you picture the scene. She's washing it. And then the Pharisee's looking at like vomiting inside his mouth and, oh my God, like, one, what the hell is she doing at my party? And two, like, Jesus, she's like touching your feet. You know how much bacteria she probably has? You know, like those tears is coming out with her. That's like, dude, like you need to like acid wash yourself. That's disgusting. She, you must have been disgusted. And she does that. She's weeping, right? And then Simon's like, Jesus, like, do you know, like, that this person's a sinner? He's like, I thought you were one of us, one of the elite. But obviously it's showing that you're something different. Right? Who are you? And look at Jesus' response. He asks, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, he goes, well, tell me. Bring it. Tell me. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You didn't give me no water for my feet. 
but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been given little loves little. So Jesus, he's always going to come with something gangster, right? Some type of like parable or something, right? He could have just said it, but he mind messed him a little bit. Because he's like, I'll tell you something. Well, tell me. He's like telling him, guys, like, what the hell are you talking about, you know? And at the end, it's like, bam, you know? I got excited and I got lost my place. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. That's powerful stuff. That's like drop the mic type of stuff, you know? He's telling Simon, look, you know what your problem is? That you're blind to your own sin. That you actually have convinced yourself that you're different from her in the eyes of God. And Simon couldn't see his own heart. He had too many vices and too many resources to distract him from taking a deep look into his heart. Tomorrow I'm going to share a little bit about the more I had, the less I depended on God. It just became distractions. And so we know this by the way. He saw the woman who desperately fell before Jesus and washed his feet with the best she had to offer. Can you imagine what it must have taken for this woman to walk up to Jesus? I mean, they say public speaking is a big fear. Maximize that by a billion. During that time, it's like flipping the script upside. It's just, you don't do that. Like you just, it's, you don't do that. Right? But she did it. The amount of courage and the amount of vulnerability that she had to do this. Crashing the Pharisees' home. And I think where that came from is she came to a place of recognizing her shame and hopelessness. She said, I don't have anything left. And I know the answer's over there. So I'm going to go. And I bet you every step she took felt like a million pounds. But she knew where she was going. She wanted to meet Jesus. And she had faith. But she had to welcome her own wounds. She knew that in her brokenness that she was dead. So if you really come to a place, and I struggle with it every day, if I really, without God, know that I'm dead, then of course I would walk. Of course I want to walk to her. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her. And he didn't give her a long lecture. He recognized her vulnerability, brokenness, and released her in peace, and her life was changed forever. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, all of us have this choice to respond like the Pharisee or to respond like the woman in vulnerability to fall at the feet of Jesus. And that's where the choice comes. Whether you have or you don't have, you will have a choice to respond in that way. A.W. Tozer says, I do not think I can ever worship a God who was caught unaware of circumstance in his world around me. I do not think I could bow my knees before a God that I had to apologize for. I could never offer myself to a God who needed me, my brother. So to take it home, this passage for me, we see a messed up woman right walk right up to Jesus, doesn't care about anything else except her destination of making it to Jesus in her brokenness, that she embraced her wound, and she said, God, I'm going to come to you with everything that I have. He walks to her, and he forgives her, and he provides her with freedom from the shame of her past. I don't know I have so many dang quotes in here, but here's the last quote. David Brenner, he wrote a book, I think, Surrender to Love. He says, genuine transformation requires vulnerability. 
It is not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It is the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. And that's the game. If it's really about love, then we have to find areas and parts of our life to be able to experience this love and to be able to share it. See, I'm tired of even for myself when I preach it, love, love, love. You know, tomorrow we'll talk about grace. We're going to talk about costly grace and cheap grace. As a Christian, what I'm realizing is this is really hard work. You know, when they said, say that prayer, it was like, your life will change. I feel like somebody lied to me because they didn't tell me all this other stuff was going to come. It's like, you know, you the ABCs and you're going to be good. I'm like, my life got worse in some ways because now I have, you know, I've, when you taste the living water, it's like, oh my God, I can't go back to this old life, but my flesh really wants to go. I remember the days, the time where the flesh felt really good, but now I have this like nagging thing. Now I can't like fully go because like, I just can't. And life became tougher. So what I find is I have to keep myself vulnerable to God so I don't become hardened. So the closing is very simple today. It's two things. I don't know if you've heard this before in this sermon today, but the first thing is I just wanted to mirror back to you your preciousness in the eyes of God. I think sometimes we forget. It's hard living in Orange County too. We run the rat race and tomorrow we'll talk about it. But every time as we live life, I'd like for you to remember and like to mirror back to you the preciousness in God's eyes. And the second thing I'd like to share is that I also want to remind you, in all of your shame, some of us have a little more sin, but in the eyes, you know, it's all good, that's all equal, but whatever it is that in your shame, in your sin, in your pain, that we serve a God who embraces us in our brokenness, that everything else outside of God is going to be an expectation for you to hit in order to be brought back into the circle of kinship. But God takes you in your brokenness, and he keeps you. The game of it is, do we stay in it because the love is so overwhelming, or do we have to step out and then test God to come back? That's really the game, to try to figure it out. So transformation doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of work. and must never lose hope. and must never allow our sin to push us away from God. That's day one. God, thank you for um, just providing us this wonderful place we can come together as a community of hope, a community of faith, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you recognize us, Father, for what we are. And you look beyond that, Father, and you still embrace us and you give us second, third, fourth, fifth, hundreds of chances, Lord. I pray that the second half of our life will be focused on our relationship with you that we would find areas to be vulnerable with you and that we would be able to live in an abundance of your joy and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for this precious time. We can get away from the distractions of our busy lives uh, down in the city. And I pray that you will be with us, Lord, these next few days. Because your Holy Spirit would move in us. And I'm just grateful for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.